For almost 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has pointed the way toward salvation through Jesus Christ. For each of us, that journey starts in darkness, as in a cave. We invite you now to join us as we seek wisdom and truth by way of faith and reason with your guides, Mark Tuttle, Timothy O'Donnell, and Joseph Tomasian. Join us in the Catholic Cave. And welcome, welcome back to the Catholic Cave. Actually, we're here for the first time. Welcome to the Catholic Cave. At I'm, least on this episode. I'm, <laughs> I'm Mark Tuttle here with Timothy O'Donnell. And we are in studio on a very, very rainy, wet mm-hmm. morning. But all things we should rejoice. So let's let's go ahead. Dry here in the cave. Dry here in the cave. But let's let's go ahead. Let's start with a, a quick prayer to, to get things started. This is a prayer attributed to St. Anselm. So in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, O Lord my God, teach my heart this day where and how to see you, where and how to find you. You have made me and remade me, and you've bestowed on me all the good things I possess, and still I do not know you. I have not yet done that for which I was made. Teach me to seek you, for I cannot seek you unless you teach me, or find you unless you show me yourself to me. Let me seek you in my desire. Let me desire you in my seeking. Let me find you by loving you. Let me love you when I find you. Amen. Amen. And I think that is a great note to uh, to start today's um, show off because I think in today's today's day and age, but but particularly I think as a Catholic today. Finding God and finding the truth in the midst of the confusion of what we're hearing all around us becomes increasingly difficult. It seems like every day it gets harder and harder to find the authentic voice of truth in the midst of the the cacophony of everyday I life. I was going to use that word cacophony. I know. It's, beat a, me per- to it. it's a perfect word, it right? Is. Perfect word for 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 what goes on. And not just in the in the secular world, but honestly, there's a cacophony right now within the church. Um, you know, that that you hear competing voices, you hear competing claims to the truth. You've got one group saying this, another group saying that. You've got confusion all around and so cutting through that cacophony i think is increasingly important it it is and it's you know it can be unsettling too it's it's not it's as you mentioned it's competing voices um different you know people with different levels of authority or expertise um you know contradicting each other or you know making claims that that this is what's right and that's right. so it can be very difficult i think with the setting that we're in especially with technology where we have access to 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 all of those voices and more via the internet um it can be it can be very difficult to to navigate and try to untangle um the the various voices that are out there because we we want to know the truth of things we want to um, so we can, so we can grab onto it and hold onto it. And our Lord is truth itself. And so we love Jesus. We love Holy mother church. We want to pursue the truth and we want to grab onto it. And it's, it's not always, it's, it can be it, it, under any circumstance can be difficult, but it seems like it's particularly difficult these days. Yeah. And I think that's where Catholic philosophy, um, and particularly Catholic philosophy can offer a lot to the world because within Catholic philosophy, you have a grounding within the church's perennial teaching. And that gives you a foundation 
from which to explore, right? Um, so, you know, it gives you solid ground to stand on while you're looking at the skies, right? So, you right, know, and, right. and, and while you're trying to discern all of this, having that, that background of, of sort of rock steady theological truth um, helps you be able to have a platform from where you can feel comfortable exploring and looking at different different angles. But even that's sometimes hard to find what that rock solid ground actually is. It, it, it certainly can be. Uh, fortunately, we have the, the magisterium, we have the catechism, various catechisms, Holy Mother Church and documents, things like that. But, but then it becomes one of, then the task becomes one of um, uh, time, effort, skill level, competency um, to, to kind of do that. So I think we should not go it alone here, Mark. I think we should bring in somewhat a voice of clarity into the Catholic cave. Yeah, and, and I think um, we're, we're going to look today in the Catholic cave, we're going to look at the idea of the development of doctrine and really try to get get a better understanding of how theological doctrine develops over time. I know this is the Catholic cave and we're a philosophy show, but sometimes it's important to go back and look at an element of theology to, to kind of figure out where the grounding can, can go from theological understanding to philosophical speculation. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have Dr. David Devil from University of St. Thomas in Houston here on the Catholic cave with us. You've been listening to the Catholic cave on Catholic radio, Indy philosophy with a distinctly Catholic approach. That's what the Catholic cave on Catholic radio, Indy is all about taking the contributions of the great thinkers and theologians of yesterday and trying to apply them to today's world, Tim O'Donnell and Mark Tuttle discuss and debate the ethical and moral challenges of our day. Join us for the Catholic Cave, Saturday and Sunday mornings at 11 and Tuesday at noon. Also available on podcast at catholicradioindy.org. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. Tim O'Donnell still here with Mark Tuttle. And we are now joined by a great friend of the Catholic Cave, a frequent guest in the past, but it's been a little bit, it's been a minute since he's been on the program in the Catholic Cave, and I am delighted to introduce Dr. David Devil. He is a professor of theology at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, in Houston now, used to be up in Minnesota. Uh, some of his areas of expertise are, are around uh, St. John Henry uh, Cardinal Newman, for one, um, I would say his most recent book, one that I really enjoyed reading, was uh, a book on Solzhenitsyn called Solzhenitsyn and American Culture, The Russian Soul in the West, co-edited with Jessica Hooten. Uh, but also, he's you can find him everywhere. If you look online for Dr. David Devil, he writes for American Conservative. He's the, uh, he's the past editor. It's something I subscribe to, to Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. Uh, contributing editor also um, to the uh, Vogelin View. So Eric Vogelin's another very interesting author to read more about. Um, very prolific author. You can see uh, uh, Dr. Devil's work all over the internet. Uh, very solid Catholic and, and, and Catholic intellectual, very faithful to the to Holy Mother Church and her teachings. And uh, welcome to the Catholic Cave. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. It's awesome, and your return is so timely because there's a lot of stuff. Oh, well, there's always stuff going on, but I think one of the things we're most interested in uh, talking to you about 
is the topic of doctrinal development. Like, how does, I know that's a field of expertise for you. Um, we, we're curious about, want to learn more about um, how, how does that happen? Like, what is doctrinal development? Maybe if you have an example of it, and then maybe we can talk about or unpack a little bit about, like, what's authentic development and what's maybe, you know, this, I don't know, discontinuity or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly, because I yeah. think that's where the rubber meets the road. I think what everybody's kind of wanting to know is how do you tell true development of doctrine from, you know, the big R word, rupture, you know, when, yeah. when, when yeah. can you tell that something's gone off the rails and is no longer part of the, 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 the healthy development of Catholic doctrine? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, the big, you know, one of the biggest uh, developments was right from the beginning and it was right in the center of of Catholic teaching, and that is uh, the nature of Jesus Christ, and was he fully God and fully human? And, uh, you know, for those of you who who uh, who have studied a little bit of Church history, that first ecumenical council of Nicaea in 325 was when uh, when the Lord was uh, declared homoousios, or as we say, you know, in the English translation in the Creed on Sunday, consubstantial with the Father, of the same being, of the same substance. And that itself is an example of doctrinal development, because it was a new term, it was controversial because it was not a biblical term, but it expressed what had been present in the teaching about the Lord from the very beginning. So that gives you a clue Mm. about what true doctrinal development is, as opposed to, uh, I think Mark used the term rupture, uh, John Henry Newman, St. John Henry Newman, in his famous book, An Essay on the Development of Doctrine, he talk, talked about false development as corruption, a change that uh, is certainly a change, but one that brings about the breaking down and the death of the organism. Um, so a true development is one that is, brings out something that's already present in the deposit of faith, in the truth that we hold, and it makes it more clear, it makes it more bright, it makes it more uh, understandable, it sets it out in the whole body of the teaching of the Church, and thus it leads to the health of the Church uh, and the health of the doctrine, whereas a false development, a corruption, leads to, leads to basically a breakdown. Uh, and there, you know, there have been all sorts of uh, uh, attempts at uh, developments that the church has ultimately developed, uh, has ultimately uh, conceived of as corruptions. Um, in, you know, in 325 at Nicaea, I mean, they were reacting to the Egyptian priest Arius, who had tried to develop the notion of of Jesus' nature, and his thing was, well, he certainly wasn't God in the same sense. He was not consubstantial with the Father. He was not. He was just simply like the Father. That would have ruined things because that was a false development, and it was not true to what was there before. That's a great example. I, I, especially like the way you tied it back into the creed and how thing and and as you point out how things. I always think of like um, in my where my mind goes is like the acorn that develops into the mighty oak tree, right? The, That's right. The, yeah. the acorn the acorn becomes more of what it. It fulfills its potential, becomes more of what it ought to be. Yeah, but you know, it brings up that epistemological question that's all, always there of how do you know 
what's unknown, right? So if, if, you're, if, if true development is sort of an unfolding of what was already there, how do you know what was already there to begin with? It, it, it's almost contradictory in some ways when you think about it, that you're going to be looking for something that was already there, but we didn't know prior to that. Yeah, that, I mean, and that's the tough part because, well, uh, you know, as Tim's example of the acorn and the oak shows, uh, things can look very different, but still be faithful. You know, I mean, a, a, an oak tree, a full-blown oak tree, doesn't look like the acorn. But there, uh, but you have to figure out whether this thing has, as we would say now, the same DNA. And that's that's uh, you know that that question that you bring up is one that actually Newman in his essay on development said, uh, you know, that is one of the tasks that the church has. And ultimately, right, we're, we're confident that God will guide the church in the end uh, to getting the right answer, but there is a process of doing it. And so one of the things that, that he offered was a series of notes or tests of true development uh, that would help you think through whether something is a, a true development or a corruption. Um, and he listed seven of them. I, you know, I don't want to go through all of them, but I mean, uh, I'll list a, a few of them. He says, look, it is, is this development, can you see a continuity of the same principles of thought at play uh, in, you know, as what happened before? In other words, if some new doctrinal development, particularly in something like moral theology, denies personal responsibility, the principle of personal responsibility, it's not going to be right. Um, another one is that he says, look, ultimately, these are going to be logical. Um, if you can trace back, you know, in the end, if you can see that this is a logical development and not illogical, that's a good sign as well. And uh, the most important one, I think, of his seven is one that he calls conservative action upon the past. If some proposed new development uh, makes you think that other things that, that the Church already held were false, then it is probably not a true development. Uh, and in fact, I think that's probably one of the most, that's one of the most safe ones, is that if this makes you believe, if this makes you believe you're, you know, everything else you believed was false, this, this is a wrong turn. Well, so, that's a, that's I, a, you know, that sounds a lot like the, the law of non-contradiction at, at right, play, right. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, yeah, it's it's definitely you know, and that's the thing. Logic plays through. Now, Newman will say, yeah, obviously the conversations are not going to be like a classroom where somebody's, you know, doing syllogisms on the board, or you know, it's not like a computer program. The life of the church, you know, we have these conversations. Sometimes they go this way, and sometimes they go that way. But in the end, yeah, you're gonna have you're gonna have to see that it's logical and that it's not, it's not contradictory at all. It also seems like it would it takes. A lot of time, like the church mm-hmm. is. I'm thinking now of like um, the the dogma of the immaculate conception, right? That we don't get to 1854, something like that, right? And and yet we're, as you mentioned, Doctor Devil, it it needs to have been present from the beginning, and we can see that now. But look how long it it took, and carefully, Holy Mother Church thought about, contemplated, discussed, meditated on. All those centuries, and it and accompanying the 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 um, the development the, the the development of the thought process of the logic, what what accompanied it too that I think is remarkable is the arts. Like you had music, you had song, you had 
paintings all depicting leading up to and culminating in that dogma along the way. So again, you have these kind of art in that instance, at least served as kind of markers along the way of, of what Holy Mother Church believed, if not fully expressed until we get the document, until we get the encyclical. I think that's, that's, that's an incredible point. I, I, it's funny that you say that because uh, my family, over the break here, went over to the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, and I was pointing out to a couple of my kids, there was a painting from, I think, the, the late 1580s or something like this, and it was, it was of Mary, and it was titled The Immaculate Conception. And I said to my kids, you know, remember that the Immaculate Conception was not declared as a dogma until 1854, but there were these liturgical celebrations, and the art, you know, shows this. Um, and uses this biblical imagery. Uh, it had been debated and talked about and celebrated with what does the Immaculate Conception mean, you know, for at least 600 years before it was, uh, it was decided, you know, that it was declared definitively as a dogma. And all of that is, is a big process. Uh, you know, Newman says that in, in his essay on development that that uh, basically there's always going to be wrangling about these things, and that's part of the process, is that, you know, one, you know, one father of the Church or one medieval writer, you know, ex- you know basically explores a topic, and then a whole bunch of other people, uh, ex- you know, explore it more, and they say, well, yeah, he, does he have the right take on what, what, what this doctrine really means or what this scriptural passage means? And over time, through a lot of wrangling and through a lot of uh, of art and that census uh, fidelium, the sense of mm. the faithful, the people who are making that art and singing those songs, uh, the church discerns what is the proper take on something. Um, so it is. It's it's a long process. It's kind of messy, um, but we w- we do want to get it right, and we don't want to just sort of uh, declare anything a development when it might be a corrupt. I mean, you know. Cancer is gross, but right. it's, a, right. it's a gross that'll kill you. Right. So we don't want theological or spiritual cancer. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking yeah. of uh, you know, if you had a, you know, you plant acorn, then you know, a few years later you look out there and there you've got your sapling of your oak tree going, and then, but you notice instead of you know next to some of the branches you see the you know the arm of a monkey growing and you're going whoa yeah. there's something really wrong with this oak tree <laughs> exactly. like that's not supposed to be there right. and it kind of so unfortunately heresy um to, you know departures from the truth of things are not always easy to see and there's they're no. often accompanied with a certain amount of vigor that goes along with heretical impulses and things like that. And so the Aryan heresy, I'm glad you brought that one up earlier because that obviously resulted in a, a lot of back and forth. Right. Well, yeah. we're, we're talking with Dr. David Devil, um, professor of theology from St. Thomas University in Houston. And we're talking about the development of doctrine and, um, you know, kind of how you can really discern what is a true outgrowth of the church's teachings versus what might be, as we were just saying, kind of cancerous. Um, and, and, and Dr. Devil, something was said a little bit earlier that I want to ask you about. And, and the implication was, well, part of, part of this process 
necessarily involves faith in the magisterium of the church, right? I mean, it, it's not it's not lay people. It's not even really theologians that are tracing these things out. It's it's Mother Church with her magisterial protections. How would you describe that relationship between, on the one hand, you've got sort of the I guess supernatural protection of the church so that she doesn't go off the rails. But on the other hand, you've got this back and forth. You've got the mess and the wrangling and, and the mess yeah. and the wrangling. And, and honestly, there's a, a necessary role for critical theology. I would say involved in this process. How do you describe that interplay between the magisterial side of the church and this almost exploratory theological side of the church? Yeah, there's, there's, it, you know, there's a great line uh, that Newman uses in his his book uh, on the development of doctrine. He, talk, he talks about how doctrine ends up being, and he uses this term. It's morning as we're recording this, right? Coffee. He says doctrine is percolated oh. through different minds, and basically, mm. from, and he says it goes from writers of inferior authority to the enunciation of her doctors. So, in other words. You know, these people who may not be important, these exploratory theologians, they might be inferior, uh, but uh, basically uh, God uses those minds to percolate this stuff so that you can get pure theological coffee in the end. Um, but another way of putting it, and this is the way that St. Thomas Aquinas put it, was that uh, there basically are two magisteriums. Um, one is the you know the final authoritative magisterium composed of of uh, the bishops and the bishop of Rome, the Pope, and then the other one are the theologians. Now in modern times, you know people get a little bit weird about this because you have these these theologians who say yes we're a parallel magisterium and we have the same authority. That's not true, uh, but it is true that you that you know anybody who teaches in the name of the church. Right, and that goes from uh, you know you know priests and and college professors and high school religion teachers and all of us are acting in some sense uh, as part of or on behalf of the magisterium, and what we do uh, is important. But we want to be able to think with the church, as Saint Ignatius Loyola said, and and that itself is uh, you know is something that's difficult to do sometimes. Uh, but that's the way you do it, is you try to to always think with the Church, think the Holy Spirit's thoughts and not your own, and to be humble about the fact that, yeah, you might be an inferior authority, as Newman says, um, uh, but you have something to offer, but it's only going to be good if you offer it in that spirit of humility and willingness to be corrected, because we don't see everything in the same way that God does. Yeah, I've always seen it as, you know, doctrine development develops somewhat dialectically, right? So you've got you've got to have two sides um, yeah. to to continue. And and I, I think it's Newman that, that basically said, you know, doctrine really only gets defined once it's been sort of questioned and challenged. Yeah, there's no point of answering a question that hasn't been right. raised. Right. And and you know, <laughs> um, you know, Tim brought up the, the the example of, you know, the 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 dogma of the immaculate conception. You know, part of the reason that that didn't get defined until the 19th century was because it really hadn't been heavily questioned until the 19th century. Well, I mean, it, it had. I mean, that's part of why it took so long. I mean, Thomas Aquinas, you know, a lot of people don't know this. Thomas Aquinas, genius. 
probably one, you know, the greatest, if not the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, uh, you know, right. people, love- people rank him next right. to Augustine or somebody, but wherever he is, you know, he's on the top shelf. And yet he didn't, he didn't think that the Immaculate Conception was true because he thought that if Mary was immaculately conceived, then that would mean that she didn't need a redeemer. Um, and so it was up to other people to offer answers. And, and the one who actually ended up offering the, the answer to Thomas Aquinas was a guy who's unfortunately been stuck at the level of uh, beatified, plus <laughs> right. done SCOTUS, right? right. He, said, he said, look, here's the thing. He said, you can be saved in two ways. He said, you know, if if I'm walking down the road and there's a hole in the road and I fall in it and you pull me out, you've saved me. But if I'm walking down the road and you see I'm going to go in it and you tackle me before I go into it, you've saved me as well. And so he said that's what happened to the Blessed Virgin Mary is that she was saved, right, uh, as anybody in the Old Testament was, uh, on behalf of the merits of Christ who would who would die. Uh, but he, she was saved in a new and different way. She was prevented from falling into the hole of sin. But but that's exactly that dialectical uh, aspect to it, is that ultimately, you know, people said, well, Thomas Aquinas is the big guy, but at the same time, Duns Scotus seems right, and then they looked at all the art, and, you know, 600 years later, that's, you know, then you get a final final definition. And it takes a lot of time. I mean, that's one of the things that Newman says in one of his other books, his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, his, uh, his defense of his own life. He says when people say that they're worried about the Church, uh, you know, defining doctrines, just sort of like throwing out, do- you know, it's kind of like Oprah, you get a doctrine, you get a doctrine. <laughs> he says that's just not going to happen. He says it takes hundreds of years usually for these things to get nailed down. And even in the case of right, of our, our Lord's divinity. It took, right, what, 300 years, and then a few hundred more years of working out all the diff- other aspects of that topic, like, okay, well, he's consubstantial with the Father, but what about his human side? Does he ha- Is he fully human? Does he have a soul? Does he have his own will, a human will? All of that stuff took hundreds and hundreds of years. <laughs> and again, fights, but, uh, but it, but the Lord brings it to a, a final conclusion. We're talking with Dr. David Devil. We're talking about uh, the the development of doctrine, and um, you know, you're bringing up the development. I think of the um, of 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 the two natures of of Christ. Right. We 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 kind of started the show with that, and you just mentioned it again. And I've I've had this thought percolating in the back of my head. There's that Notice, word again. Yeah, percolating. I was going to say good, um, good job of using so, the word. So you know, when we look at the the whole expanse of the church, and we look at what's happening now. With, with the development of doctrine, because a lot of people are going, wait a second, how it, <laughs> what's going on in the church right now? I think a lot of people have that, yeah. that question. Um, it seems to me on that question of the two natures of Christ that the, the early church sort of dealt with the question of, does Christ have two natures? The medieval church really dealt with, okay, what is the divine nature of Christ? What, what is that, that godly nature side of Christ? And now in, in modern times, we're really dealing with what is it that Christ was human and what does it mean to be human and, and what is it to be a godly human? And so we're really wrestling with that question of anthropology and what it means to be human. Is that, a, is that kind of an accurate big 
picture view of of the the continuation of of how how these doctrines are developing i i think i think that's exactly right i think the question you know the philosopher hegel you brought up dialectic and the philosopher hegel was famous for his notion of of dialectic and and of course what the church does is not what hegel does but there's certainly a truth there right that uh, that god brings things together and hegel said look every age has one big question to answer. And I think you're correct that in the life of the Church and in the life of the world, we're asking this question yet again, what does it mean to be human? Not that it was never asked before, but now it's it's become a real, real topic oh, yeah. for people, because as, as, as the, you know, as Christendom sort of evaporates as this large body of societies and civilization that was based on uh, a Christian understanding of the world, as that kind of melts away, people are lost. And you can see that because the rise of these things like transgenderism and transhumanism shows that they, they really are, are groping for some notion of what it means to be human. And unfortunately, in many cases, they're often rejecting what it means to be human. Um, so, th- you know, that is the big, that's the big question. And can there be a doctrinal development about what it means to be human? Obviously. But one of the things that, as we said before, can't happen is that we contradict what we understood before. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people are, are promoting is a notion of what it means to be human. Uh, you know, and this I think this is true because a lot of the to- topics that we're wrestling with, particularly in church, have to do with still with sexual ethics and ultimately, those depend upon what it means to be a human made in the image of God, male and female. Yeah, I still think the the area of psychology, uh, we're in, in modern times, we're really unpacking this massive, not development in the church's sense, but development in a worldly sense of the science of psychology that you know, there are so many different opinions about human psychology floating out there, even from, from clinical psychologists that are involved in therapy. What makes up the human psyche? Is the human psyche one? Is there a multiplicity? You know, what what's going on within within the human mind? That is so open right now that it's got to affect the church and the way the church is, is seeing humanity and, and who and what mankind really is. Well, I, yeah, I think so. Oh, go, go ahead. Jim. Oh, I was just going to say the uh, you brought up you know gender ideology, and I I thought some of the uh, it was back in March of 2023, um, the USCCB put out I thought a very helpful document um, that pertained to Catholic healthcare providers and setting uh, very reasonable and needed limits as to their participation in things like. Um, uh, transgender um, therapies and surgeries and things like that. The reason why I bring that document up is at the heart of that is this, they do identify that there is an anthropological crisis going on. And I think that would be, um, and maybe maybe it is being worked on behind the scenes, but it, that is maybe not so much a deve- anthropological development or doctrinal development about who the human person is, but it, it does seem like it, it the church does have something to offer. It could be rearticulated, reasserted, or as Father Kirby was talking about the other day, proclaimed about who the human person is, who we are, um, and our final, you know, our, our ultimate destination, our ultimate end of beatitude. 
Like, you're right. I, I love that phrase you said, Dr. Devil, about Christendom evaporating. And it, as, as, it, you know, as it evaporates, there's this, the void is being filled with all, all kinds of errors that are, very, are dehumanizing and damaging. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, th- that document that you t- I can't remember the name of it. I, but I, was I should teaching, look it up. Yeah, I was teaching moral theology at the time, and I thought it was great that it came out, and I gave it to my class because it did. It set out good limits on, well, what kind of surgeries do you do that correct the human? Because a lot of people say, well, you know, if you're going to ban, uh, you know, quote-unquote gender affirmation surgery in which, you know, you mutilate the genitals and try to make them look like the opposites. If you're going to do that, you're going to ban haircuts and cutting your fingernails. Right, right. And it made clear that, look, <laughs> you know, there are, there are aspects of what it means to be human that parts of our body can be, can be changed surgically, obviously. But when you're talking about removing something or stopping it from functioning, uh, then you have to have a, a greater a greater cause for you know obviously we don't you know if somebody's arm is gangrenous and you know it's going to kill the person yeah you can cut the arm off uh, but to but to say a person is uncomfortable with their own given sex that's not no what we need to do is something something very different so I I was really uh, appreciative of of that document, although as, as, you know, as many of the expected source, oh, well, this doesn't really reflect today. And I, I thought it, it reflected today very well. And, and I'm glad for that. I'm glad for that sort of stuff. So yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the church does have something to proclaim. And I think we need to, we need to keep, keep proclaiming it. Yeah. And, and in this case, like so many cases too, the church's wisdom isn't just thinking about those issues today. I mean, there's a long history and long sort of theological wrestling with this idea of, of gender. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, um, the other, the other John Scotus, John Scotus Eugenia, who's a uh, ninth century monk in Charlemagne's court. But in, in thinking through these issues, you know, he talked about the differentiation in sort of the evolution of, of mankind. For him, evolution wasn't a physical thing, you know, it was a, more of a spiritual thing. But that differentiation between man and woman came basically in his mind came prior to the creation of Adam. So in other words, you, yeah. you, you had basically male and female in, in some way created more primordially than human being in physical existence. And, you know, the, he may or may not have been right. He, you know, he's certainly, I think by a lot of church sources seen as one of those lesser thinkers, but he had something to the table, even though it came from the ninth century. And, and that, that sense of history with these issues that the church can continually bring to very contemporary questions, I think is crucial. And it's also part of the process of, of the development of Catholic doctrine as Catholic doctrine. That's right. I mean, we're continuing, you know, as the, as the Lord said in his parable, you know, a good steward brings out old things and new things, and uh, and that's that's what the advantage of the church is. I mean, G.K. Chesterton said this is the the thing about the church is the church cares about the heresies long after the heresies are are gone. Why? Because we're constantly bringing out what the truths are uh, that that were used to to correct the heresies, and they might be useful in a different age. 
you know, it's with with regard to this question about the male females. I mean, you, as you say, that it's not clear that uh, Scotus Erigena is 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 right. I mean, there's there's this long history, and Thomas Aquinas is kind of on a different side of that issue as well. Um, but but I think there's a lot of wealth of of thought there that uh, goes into these questions. I had a student this past semester who was very interested in this question of precisely are souls masculine and feminine or you know or male and female, and you get different answers in the tradition depending upon who you ask. Um, and you know and that's not something that I think has been settled doctrinally yet, but I think it has. A great, great importance. Um, you know, some people argue that they have to be masculine and feminine. Otherwise, you kind of give way to those who say, well, if the soul is sort of neuter or, or both, then uh, then you can just sort of, you know, you might you, you can you can be anything. And other people say, well, no, uh, that's not right. They have to be masculine. But then people say, well, but then if they are, then what if you had the wrong, you know, so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of deep questions and a lot of a lot of payout um, that that's very important in these questions and that, you know again the, I think people get worried because the church seems uh, you know unsteady right now things you know things seem kind of out of whack and unsettled and I'm not going to say that that's you know that that's pleasant or good but nev- but ne- nevertheless. That seems to be the case throughout a lot of church history with this wrangling and contention. And the Lord wants us to really rely upon Him and trust Him and to offer our own particular, maybe inferior, maybe superior uh, voices uh, to these debates, but most of all to be faithful to Him and to trust that He'll bring these these things to a conclusion. Yeah, and that brings up another sort of topic with this, and that's the, the importance of intellectual freedom in in this process of development of doctrine um you know you need to be able to have a certain amount of ability to question um maybe not question what the church says but maybe question how the church says it or what the church is meaning by by what it said but you need to have a certain climate where theologians and academics feel free to be able to question, express themselves, raise questions, etc., without the, the constant, well, you know, Rome has spoken, the, 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 the cause is finished. Yeah. Well, you know, again, uh, John Henry Newman, his Apologia Pro Vita Sua, his defense of his own life, that's one of the points that he was making then, writing in the 1860s. Not that he was an unfaithful Catholic, but he said, look, there is a sense in which the centralization of the Church has not been good for the Church's intellectual life. If you're afraid that any time you say something, you're going to get uh, a note from Rome or a, dis- you know, a disciplinary Anathema. action, yeah, it's, it, it's a problem. And he looked back to the Middle Ages when what you had was, uh, you know, maybe not always well-organized, but there was a pretty predictable process. You know, you're a theologian, you say, I think it means X. And somebody else says, I think it means why. And then you two, de- you know, write things back and forth. Then there's a debate, <laughs> you know, and then all these universities get involved and the bishops weigh in. And then finally it reaches Rome. And that's one of the things that Newman said, we really need to get back to that point where schools of theology are present and uh, and they can they can sort of hash things out 
and allow this process to take place, because otherwise it, it does sort of short-circuit things, and it makes it difficult for the Church to act in the way the Lord wants her to. He, he said, look, a lot of people say, well, you know, you know, the Catholic faith is really all about authority, and, uh, the, and Protestantism is all about freedom. And he said, that's not the way I see it. The way I see it in these old patterns of how things developed is that you have authority and you have freedom running both full speed <laughs> at the same time, and they produce something that maybe it may seem like a violent collision now, but it, it, it produces something. And, and I think that's, that's exactly what we need. Well, I, I'd like to—that's so helpful. That, that's a good um, transition to uh, Catholic education. So I would I'd love for you to tell us a little bit, Dr. Devil, about the importance of Catholic education, specifically, like, what's going on with your university? I, I think you've got some exciting programs— uh, that that you guys have been developing and launched, and but I, I'd like to I'd like to hear from you that's because there is a lot to discern this wrangling things like that the importance of getting a a really good Catholic education. Yeah, I, well, I think what we're seeing with the debates in the public sphere about education really shows that that you know for a long time a lot of people said well you can just have a sort of a neutral education that's just you know focus on on reading, writing, and arithmetic. But I think what people are realizing is that all education is, as people thought from all time, it's formative. And that's why it's important to have a Catholic education that teaches you to read and write, certainly, but it teaches you to think and be able to to discern and to make judgments according to that vision of how the world is and what a human being is. Um, so here at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, I, I'm really pleased this is my second year here. Uh, I came down here in, in large part because I had a group of friends who said there's some really dynamic things going on. And uh, I, I've come down. We have a brand-new core curriculum, which I think is returned to an uh, an earlier version of, you know, these days if you go to college, they call, call it a core class. It's just a distribution requirement take a course from column A, B, or C, and there's no sense of a unified body of knowledge. We have a new core curriculum that's in, in its second year now, and I think it's already, uh, it's already showing fruit that students are starting to be able to think about things in a coherent way, and their education is being developed. So that's one of the big things, um, is this new core curriculum. But we have several other programs, and I want to bring up the first one uh, is the MFA program, the Master of Fine Arts uh, in Writing. And this is directed by, I don't know if you guys know the, the name of James Matthew Wilson, very well-known poet um, and mm-hmm. essayist. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and, and then Josh Wren, who is a, a novelist and short story writer and critic. Um, they, this, they, they pioneered this a few years ago. It's the uh, first and only Master of Fine Arts in the Catholic literary tradition. And it's really the first fully integrated curriculum uh, that uh, that has both the Catholic literary and the intellectual tradition at its heart. You know, people who want to be writers, they go to these, you know, the Iowa Writers School or something like that. You know, you might get Columbia, God forbid. Yeah, <laughs> Columbia, right? But this is one that says, look, you're not recreating. You know, you you don't have to be completely 
uh, knew about your stuff, right? There's this whole literary tradition, and we're going to teach you about that, and we're going to teach you techniques, but we're going to teach you a way of seeing things. And they've started out, this is, I think, the third year they had. They've, they've graduated now two cohorts, uh, but they, right now it's focusing on fiction and poetry, but they're going to be adding literary nonfiction and also spiritual memoir. Oh, uh, you wow. know, people who want to write about their conversion story or about uh, about the end of their whole life as a conversion, uh, they're going to be doing that. So it's it's a really exciting program, uh, and it's all online. Uh, but they have in the summer, they have a, a residency for ten days where you can come and work together on some project and have that in person aspect. And then they have a literary series in which really really big name speakers. Uh, come and talk about uh, writing. So this is, you know, this is one of the programs that I think is just incredibly dynamic. And and one of the one of the things that you find out is that not only are you are are we seeing from our students in the MFA program, some of whom do live around here, but even though the courses are online, but I've met a number of them. Many of them had never published anything, and now they're publishing poems and stories in journals, and even a couple of them have published books. Uh, but the, but but what's amazing is a lot of them have talked about the fact that this has been a, a sort of a spiritual program. They're now seeing the world through Catholic eyes and and artistic eyes. You know, Flannery O'Connor said that the the goal of the Catholic novelist is to see with two sets of eyes, with your own natural eyes and those of the Church, and that's what many of them are doing. So it's a really really exciting program, and uh, a lot of people are coming into it and they are it's really sort of making waves in the literary world in you know if you follow any of the stuff in the in the literary world everything's kind of dead right <laughs> you know and literary, yeah. literary fiction and that sort of thing but they're bringing they're making something alive again and that that's really exciting yeah and and you know i think there's a, a relationship to the development of doctrine and this importance of the catholic artistic and literary tradition and and you know um, I think it's I think it's Kurt Vonnegut. I, I actually probably most writers have said this that you have to establish that that sort of conflict and desire. You know, it's the desire for something more, wanting something better, wanting something more explicit, right from the get go in a good story. And um, yeah, I I think the Catholic world has that to offer, right? To 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 kind of look at this, <laughs> look at this. Uh, you you talked about the evaporating Christianity. As as Christianity evaporates, what we're left with is not a dynamic, you know, exciting world of exploration, but a very bland, vanilla, Soviet concrete type of world, I think. And and you need, I, I think, a Catholic opposition to that to, to kind of add some color, add some flavor, and remind people what they're missing and, and what they need to desire. You know, th- I think that's exactly right. You know, it's something you said earlier about, you know, all of the schools of psychology and, you know, they're all in conflict and you're not sure, you know, that was one of the positions of somebody like Walker Percy, uh, you know, who was a mid 20th century Catholic convert um, who it was, um, trained as a medical doctor. Uh, but he discovered the Catholic Church and he discovered this exciting thing. And what he produced was uh, really great fiction. He was a National Book Award winner. Um, and I, you know, I think, I think there's, there's a reason for that, that, that there were so many of these great artists 
particularly literary artists in the 20th century, uh, who were Catholic, who had discovered the faith as an adventure. They had discovered uh, the battle. They discovered that, you know, that conflict, and they'd seen how the world is a drama. And again, that's that's what I think many of our students are discovering uh, in this program. And they're producing, I mean, it's amazing. I I sit there and I, you know, I, I, I follow a lot of these, you know, these journals and I'm like, hey, that's one of our students again. Uh, and I think, you know, they're producing things, not just because they've been taught techniques, but because they've, they've been taught to see in this new way and to think in this new way and uh, to have a kind of uh, community in which that's not only acceptable, but that's, that's what we do. Really exciting work. Well, you know what, Dr. Devolt, that is a great note for us to kind of wrap things up. We have so appreciated having you back in the Catholic cave. I know there's more going on at the university. We want to hear more about that. We're going to have to have you back really soon and talk more about what's going on with Holy Mother Church, what's going on at the University of St. Thomas there in Houston, um, and... I, again, want to thank you for coming back to the Catholic Cave. Hey, thank you, Tim and Mark. It's been great talking to you. Turn on the radio and hear the Word of God. And God will speak through just listening. There are people listening, being impacted every day. One person at a time through radio waves. God speaks through Christian radio. Catholic radio, indeed. That should impact all of our lives. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle here with Timothy O'Donnell, and we just got done with a uh, fantastic interview oh, with yeah. uh, Dr. David <laughs> Devil. He is always he's always fun to have on the show. Wealth of knowledge and uh, yeah, great great conversation. And I'm really glad that conversation pivoted back to the arts at the end because I think that relationship between the arts. And theology um, gets missed a lot of times. You know, people listen to theological discussions. They listen to discussions kind of like the one we just had about development of doctrine. And their eyes kind of glaze over. And the question lingering in the back of people's minds is, why is this relevant, right? Why is this important? You know, when I've got a spiritual life and I'm going to mass and and praying, why should I really care too much about what those pointy-headed academics are doing at University of St. Thomas? So I'm glad glad we kind of got back to you know the the arts and and the importance of the arts. But I also think you know there's a more practical component to talking about development of doctrine as well. Yeah, I I thought it was particularly helpful. Um, I, I don't want to. Yeah, sometimes the the term worldview is used. I don't think that's strictly speaking applicable to to what Catholicism is. Catholicism is really more of an encounter with reality, but uh, holistically. But I I would say it's so important when he's talking about that about the uh, MFA program about how you have um, quoting um, or at least referring to Flannery O'Connor. The, the lens of which you're looking at the world, um, how important it is to add that Catholic lens or perspective to things to, to, to gain a unified vision of the whole thing. Like that is so important in, the, in how education is formative. And it's exciting that uh, the University of St. Thomas there in Houston has not only that program, but he's got other ones he's he wants to talk about. So we're going to have him back to talk about some of those programs too. But I do think the, like the fine arts are in generally in, in really disarray and to me are 
um, our sign signals and signposts of a of a culture that's that's quite ill. Yeah, I mean, there, we we should do a, a show on aesthetics, aesthetic theory at, at some point. But um, you know, one of the ideas, one of the sort of perennial philosophical ideas about the arts is the arts are really a way of communicating heart to heart, right? And mm-hmm. obviously, then the question becomes, well, what do you mean when you say heart? And they, you know, there there's a lot to unpack there. We'd have to do a whole show on it. But that communication, heart to heart, means you have to have a well-formed heart, right? You have to have a heart that is in some way not just, I don't know, filled with worldly crud. And so, <laughs> so you know, I do think don't the arts... Don't bog us down with technical terms, yeah, Mark, like crud. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I, do think the, I do think the arts suffer yeah. from the materialism and the lack of spirituality and the loss of Christianity in our culture. And I think just about everybody kind of feels that. Well, I know we're on the radio, and I, I, I've always loved the radio, um, and it's very apparent to me as I kind of surf through different radio stations as I as I as I'm driving around in my car, which I do a lot. Um, you can there there's clearly something when you think about like uh, music that's available on the radio, different kind of radio stations, and what they're playing. There are some there's uh, there's quite a bit that's gone wrong with the culture. Right, when you listen to music, and when I work with when I when I talk to others, you know, students, what have you, other adults. Um, Music as one art form is relegated generally, I think, to something that's merely subjective. Yeah. Right? And, and it's meant to and it's meant to stir the emotions, right? And and the surface emotions at that the, the, these days. The idea of music being able to penetrate you in a more soulful, deep way has has really been lost. There was a great article in The Compass about the decline of classical music. And sort of what what that means for the culture, et cetera. I know there's 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 no disputing tastes. So obviously classical music is not gonna appeal to everybody. But I think in a lot of ways as a culture, we've lost the ability even to appreciate it. Yeah. Well, again, uh much thanks to Dr. Devil for coming into the Catholic Cave. Um one other comment I want to make where we kind of started the show. It's just it's very important. I think what one thing he, uh, a lot of things that he said, but one thing that stands out to me as we are wrapping this up is the the importance of understanding that much of church church history has involved and does involve, and seems like our time is one of them as well. A lot of wrangling and some uncertainty and things like that, and I think that puts the onus back on each one of us individually because it starts with us about us living lives of virtue, holiness, prayer, modeling the behavior um, to set the example. And if we want to, if we want to change the world, we have to impact the world and it, and it can begin with, with each one of us and how we're responding to the gospel. And with that, that's all the time we have today on the Catholic cave. You've been listening to the Catholic cave on Catholic radio Indy. Be holy. The Catholic cave is a production of Catholic radio Indy. Replays of this program are available in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org. Comments about this program can be addressed by calling 317-870-8400.